Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's uh, always a pleasure to come your way and bringing you the uh, types of uh, guests and topics that I think are interesting. They're informative, uh, hopefully a little entertaining as well. And uh, we bring you new paradigms for a new world. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices. To help make your dreams come true, we're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays at 9 a.m., and during the month of December, we have been given from 8 to 9 a.m., Monday through Friday. So I hope that you will join us during the month of December for a lot of great guests that we're going to have uh, during this particular period of time as we wind down 2023. We uh, also uh, podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And uh, we also uh, are on YouTube, on YouTube, where you can watch these conversations, and I hope that you will. And uh, we also ask that if you can support the work that we are doing financially, we would be so gratefully appreciative. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And uh, when they ask you uh, for an email address to whom to send the support, it's richard at richarddugan.com. That's richard at richarddugan.com. And during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, as we've been asking you since uh, September of 2019, spend some time, quality time, going within to that quiet, peaceful, calm, still place. It's a place that no other human being of all of the 8 billion plus human beings on the planet, only one is able to go to this place, and that's you. And listen to that still small voice. We hope that you'll take the time to do that. Our program today, I, I'm, I've been looking forward to this because I, I can't relate to it, although... I think that each one of my siblings has felt this way, at least in some way, shape, or form along the way, that we were adopted, that somehow we didn't fit in. My brother and I even had the conversation once where we both admitted to each other that we felt like the black sheep of the family or adopted in that respect. So uh, it's it's kind of the direction we're going on this program. We're going to be talking with Stephen Rowley. He is the author of The Lost Coin. It's a memoir of adoption and destiny. And Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Richard, thank you for having me. This is, this is interesting because I know that what little I know, and that's where you're going to educate us, about adoption that... Um, Usually, once an adoption takes place, or maybe this is the way it used to be, it was done. Records were sealed. Uh, you never were going to find out who the child was or where the child was that you gave up or, in the child's case, where the birth parents uh, were and or are because it just that you, it just wasn't done. That's just the way it was. Um in in starting out our conversation, uh, what are the rules today here in the 21st century, 2023? Well, they've they've liberalized to some extent. They've become more lenient, if you will, uh, and that varies uh, state by state, sometimes by agency or by agency or who is middling the adoption. Uh, and of course, the the game changers have been 
even in the case of sealed records, has been things like 23andMe and, uh, and Ancestry.com. And there are other genealogical associations that trace family roots and so forth. So there are a lot more tools available. But still, there is a, it's, a, it's not uncommon to find people up against a, a, a dead end trying to find out, get into sealed records or to uh, get the people who might be in the know to uh, uh, talk about what they do know. In some cases, that's often, at least originally, even back in the old days as well as today, uh, those rules were established to uh, uh, pull the privacy of the, of the, of the birth parent. Uh, but that's a two-way street in itself because sometimes birth parents that give their, their children away want later they also want to find the child they gave away. So there's a there is a uh, uh, a very complex sort of maze, a web of these sort of new possibilities that didn't exist in the past. And yet there's a through line I think for those of us, even if we have found our birth parents as I did, in some cases those who didn't, there's still this other yearning to know. There's still something about that imp- that imprint. Uh, that comes with the trauma, I think, of being separated, uh, uh, having a child and uh, mother separated. Sort of a side note, do you think that this explosion of access to our ancestry through the various uh, DNA testing services that are available uh, has uh, uh, sort of opened up that door for a lot of people because all of a sudden they realize wait a minute, uh, my father and I are not related. My mother and I are not related. And that's doesn't make any sense right. because a lot of times the adoptive parents, they are going to, they, they, sometimes it's uh, phrased this way. We wanted to wait until you were old enough to understand. And by the time they're old enough to understand, they're in their 20s or 30s and right. and still wondering where they come from. Right. Well, it's a, it's one of the conundrums that even for, even with sophisticated tools like 23andMe and using DNA to trace our roots, whether they're uh, were not known at all, or we have enough to want to look past our own parents to find out who else I'm connected to, it begs the question, as I do in my book, uh, who am I? So for some people, finding that that link, finding you know whether the, that birth parent is alive or dead, or whether there's a family that's now become known or not. Uh, even for those, and I've connected with my, the families of my birth parents uh, over time, it still doesn't quite answer the question. I think maybe it's an existential question of who am I, but it's a, this issue of identity. How are we put together? You, you didn't mention, I think, but I'll, I'll put in here that I'm also, I've spent 40 years in public education, but I'm, I've been a psychotherapist for some time and went to school down, as I mentioned to you earlier, down the road at Pacifica Graduate, Graduate Institute. Mm-hmm. So, but, but this issue of how, uh, that from the depths of the searching process, on one hand, is like a detective story, the outer story, so to speak. And for all adoptees who either want to know or don't want to know, uh, there are there's a different story. Perfect for your, the title of your show. Tell me a story. Uh, there's a different story for every one of us on the yeah. outside. On the inside, it's a dare. I think I my my contention. It's very different. We are much more alike than most people would think. Although many who are adopted live in I'll call the broader adoption community. That can include people who are raised by others than their own biological parent, like a grandmother or a sister, knowingly or not. Uh, that uh, uh, we're left, yeah, we're left with this other question about how am I put together? Who, who, who do I belong to? Who's my tribe? Uh, there was a recent story in the news, I think, a couple month or so ago, about the singer Buffy Saint Marie, who 
many, many of us who are old enough to remember uh, as a singer back in the 70s. Uh, it had clearly as an indigenous native person from, uh, I think, Manitoba, from northern uh, Canada. But she was raised by white parents. And uh, later, tribal people kind of readopted her, and she sort of has two, a white set of parents and, a, and backed it into the tribe. But there were others within the tribe, within the, the indigenous community in, in uh, northern Canada, who disputed it because there were no birth records. Well, in, in many cases, that wasn't it. So it pushed, pushes the issue on perspective on are you part of our tribe or not? Mm. What's your proof? Yeah. And some of that is it is in blood, is it in records? And also, is it cultural identity? That's that's one of the, the big issues running through uh, our world right now. There's a, a, a woman named uh, Angela Tucker, who's a Seattle author, black woman who was ad adopted uh, and raised by white parents. She's black and parents are white. And but it pushes the issue as you get older, you know, it, it, the onus is on, on parents, I think, to how do I reculture, uh, raise our kid also in the culture from which they came, the black community in, this, in her particular case, or. Uh, if you're if you're a white parent raising uh, Korean kids, you mm -hmm. know what responsibility do you have to to uh, raise your kids up also you know kind of a, a a dual cultural world, which I think if done well just simply enriches people. But without that, it can leave people wondering uh, who where do I belong? And sometimes the answer is nowhere without the proper guidance and without the proper support. So as I say, it's a very can be very complicated quick quickly uh, in some corners of our adoption community. And I know too that, um, again, not from firsthand experience, but just from observation of news stories, as well as television programs that are usually, you know, they say based upon a true story. Uh, <laughs> there are all kinds of different reasons why right. parents, birth parents put their children up for a child or children up for adoption. And that has to be probably because uh, and and we're we're going to get into some other issues as well, but that has to probably be one of the hardest hurdles to get over, hardest challenges to deal with as an adoptee, even if you're able to find the birth parents, and even if they explain it to you. Uh, I would I would take it that there is still, regardless of. I wanted you to have a better life because blah, blah, blah. There's still that feeling of abandonment. There uh, is. Yeah. You're, you're uh, reading me and uh, my book uh, quite correctly. I, uh, it took me, I was at 40 years old when I finally tracked down my birth mother and uh, I had understood already before I met her through her, some paperwork, but mostly from the two other daughters she had wrote with another man, just how difficult life had been. And had uh, a lifetime full of drug and alcohol addiction issues. When I met her, she had just come out of a halfway house. So I appreciate, on one level, the enormous sacrifice. And I can't know for a fact whether those those uh, addiction uh, issues and, and ruined relationships she had along the way were because of that. But I have to suspect they certainly contributed. When you give up the one child and then you're on to another relationship and so forth, you leave a piece of you behind. So when we when we met each other, and really our reunion, we fully recognized last time I had been in her arms, I was ten days old, mm. and uh, and she was a young, beautiful young woman at the time. And uh, uh, but as somebody warned me in finding her, you're not going to find Elizabeth Taylor when you do catch up, and that was true on one hand. But the other the other hand, of course, was that in in our reunion, we 
it's instantaneous, almost totally intuitive. It's hard to explain how we sort of leapt into each other's souls. We, I understood how her mind worked and was like mine. Her sense of humor was like mine. Her mentality was like mine. She was an avid reader like I was. Uh, she, even though she had been uh, really had, had been uh, devastated by drugs and alcohol, had had enough sense to, based on a poster in her in her uh, meager uh, kitchen to give me a lecture on uh, the artist Kandinsky and, and the poster that hadn't explained, you know, <laughs> where where that poster came from and, and what period of art he he developed it in and so forth. It was just mind blowing. So mm. that that there's that other kind of thing that we that was a happy kind of realization there's others as you mentioned before other motivations i, I have a client who uh, uh who was uh, adopted from south america so probably you know, almost 50 years ago and uh it's quite clear to others he's met from that family through uh 23 and me that uh and he knew through i guess family scuttlebutt that his that he, his birth mother was told that he had died in birth and he was whisked out the door and was adopted by white parents and flew to the united states she vanished and it was only later that he realized she was under threat of murder and his life was in, was in um, jeopardy. And that's the reason he got out quickly because the, fa- the father or the father's family uh, was connected to a major drug cartel mm. in South America. So sometimes parents don't want to be found or you, or if you think you want to find you know, somebody, sometimes you might, not, you might want to think twice because you're, you know, sometimes it's dangerous for those so that's why I say it's complicated. Mm-hmm. But for most people, I think that that urge to know uh, that who am I uh, does, drives some of us, does not drive other people. Uh, and that's just sort of the way that it is. But for those of you who have persisted, there's been, an, I think, an enormous amount of payoff. We are talking with Stephen Rowley. He's written a book. Uh, it's called The Lost Coin, A Therapist's Personal Adoption Journey and Insights. I'm Richard Dugan, and this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and uh, we're talking with uh, Stephen Rowley and uh, his book, The Lost Coin. Um, obviously, from what you've already shared with us, you are an adoptee. And I want to get into that in a few moments. But I want to uh, ask you um, about the book, the title especially. Uh, give us uh, the story behind the title, The Lost Coin. All right. Well, uh, yes, the uh, I was a uh, couple weeks uh, away from finishing the first draft of my book, wondering how I was going to finish the book. And I, because I have uh, considerable influence and, and involvement with uh, Buddhism and, and particularly Zen Buddhism, I had a, a Zen koan on my computer. And a koan is a, can be a short sentence or it can be a long story. They're used in training for, for Zen priests to, uh, in some, some of the lineages, you might be given a koan for a month and a different one uh, every month for two years. And you're, you're, you use these things not as puzzles to be solved, but as ways in which they reveal how the mind works and how to delve into your own mind or some of the deeper mysteries of life. And I realized when I read this column, which is, uh, the coin lost in the river is found in the river. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. That's the that's the the koan. And so I realized that it's it's the nebulous almost mysterious quality. What do you mean a coin lost in the river? It seems utterly in, intuitive. You lose a coin in the river, you should reach down in the river and pick it up. But we know that refraction, it's not where we think it is. This is not like I found my keys where I left them last. Or what if the water is dirty and murky? You can't. You don't know where the coin is. It's much like life. So I wanted to, I, I, I took that phrase, the lost coin, out of the uh, 
from the koan as a way to talk about my own experience, my own reckoning with this who am I question uh, as one of, of uh, lingering mystery, not as one where I can have a, uh, a, a logical conclusion that can wrap up, well, this is what my, who I was, or here's the meaning of my life. And so I, uh, I, I concluded with a sense of mystery. If you don't mind, I'll just read you. It's just a brief little how the book ends. Mm-hmm. It'll help answer your question. Uh, like all Collins, my story is incomplete, and it has an uncertain ending. After writing the ups and downs, the joys and challenges of the le- chapters of my life, I've lost my fondness for certainty. It inhibits curiosity and dampens the capacity to hold the mystery of it all. If there's anything to be found in life, I believe it's in the searching, not the finding. Sometimes I think that after all these years, I've found myself. Other times I'm less sure. I do know one thing, though. I've always been a lucky boy, but I still don't know why. I'm more more content that way, not knowing. What would life be anyway without us mysteries slipping through our fingers like coins in a river, lost and found again and again? So out of the hands of fate, uh, why didn't I end up as I think it, with the, the difficulties that my half-sisters experienced, who are younger than me with my birth mother, I didn't go through their world. I didn't have their life. They had pretty tortured lives in their own way. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I got adopted by, you know, my dad was a surgeon. My mom was a nurse. We lived in a nice big house across the street from a country club. We weren't, we weren't raised to be privileged. We weren't rolling in money, but we lived in a big house that one would think a doctor at the time would live in. But I had all the advantages of education and, and great grandparents and the support of all the way through graduate school. I eventually ended up at Stanford with a PhD. And that's because of that family influence. So how, why did I look out? Why me? And so I think, again, the koan says that's not that the why me question is turned around like in a different way for me in, in terms of even writing the book was that because of my good fortune, what's the gift I got? How do I repay the gift? And so, in part, the impetus for writing this book was, in fact, a return, uh, a return of the, of the gift to reach to reach others with the story I have. Well, I will tell you that I think that it will also speak to those of us who have not been adopted, who are still with uh, their or connected to their birth parents, and yet still have that feeling—the feeling of disconnect in terms right. of wanting to know. Because even within families that are complete, if you will, as opposed to adoptive families, in many instances, secrets are kept over the gen- oh, yeah. sometimes over the generations. Oh, and yes. in your in your case, as an adoptee, no secrets were kept, but information was unavailable up up to a point until you began your search to find out who you really were and. It's sort of philosophically, and I want to touch upon this as well. Philosophically speaking, we are all related to one another. Uh, somewhere way back in the in history, in human history, we are all connected. So, in one sense, th- there is no disconnect. We we all belong to the same, shall we say, tribe of humanity. But I have a feeling that isn't good enough. That is not enough to placate the adoptee's uh, uh, curiosity, um, unquenchable thirst for mm-hmm. finding out who they really are. Uh, and and I'm, I'm taken aback sometimes by 
when I talk with my sister, for example, and we kind of compare DNA notes from uh, uh, Ancestry.com, which is where we went through, she doesn't have the exact same lineage that I do. Now, that's not to say that we were <laughs> that we don't have the same parents. We do. But it's amazing to me how the DNA does what it does to give me the connection to the Native American tribes of North Central and South America, and then 1% East European Jew, and she doesn't necessarily have those attributes. She has attributes from other parts of the world. But then you throw into the mix, here we are with Stephen Rowley, who is an who is an adoptee, runs his DNA, finds out, oh, I'm from here and here and here and here and here on the globe, but I don't know where I where I come from immediately. Like again, the parents. Right. What was your um? Okay. The best way I can phrase this is this. Um, Years ago, someone made the comment to me during a a personal growth program where people were asking questions. And the question was, why? Why this? Why that? Why the other? Why blah, 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 blah. Why? And we were told, you need to give up the need to know why. And then they would emphasize by saying, if you knew the reason why, how would that change your life? So I kind of put that to you, Stephen. Um, was there a point at which you had to have the answer to the why? Why wh- Why am I adopted, et cetera, et cetera, all the other stuff that comes along with it? And how did it, once you had the answers that you wanted, and I'm, I'm guessing that you've pretty much, what, gotten the answers that you've desired uh, to find out who you are, how did that actually change you? Great question. Great question. In the case of my birth mother, where I really did an enormous amount of active searching, detective work, if you will, and, and found her, uh, the, the experience of meeting her was life-changing, just in the sense of like that, that mutual self-identification, uh, her telling me that she never forgot my birthday, and it was a dumb question probably to ask her anyway. That was so deeply emotionally gratifying to, to be to be to be seen as i think it's orwell who who said i think in 1984 perhaps better to be seen than to be, than to be loved that's one of the things underlying i think the orphan in us the, the adoption world is that we sometimes without other recognition and, and whatever or we 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 uh, we feel invisible now we can't all fill it in even the case where i wasn't very actively involved in the search by birth father that news came to me just two years ago through uh uh 23 and me and uh uh, it's been gratifying to know that, see pictures of him, that seeing the pictures when he was 19 looked just like me. I have four new half-sisters. I just got a Christmas card from one of them uh, with a, all of her children and their children. It's a huge family picture. They're like, I'm related. I mean, genetically, I'm related to all of them. Mm-hmm. But how much meaning does that have to me? Uh, it goes back to your original question just a moment ago about, about uh, do I really belong to this family? Mm. Uh, the DNA says I do. But I'm, now, as a psychotherapist, I'm talking. This is a, a construct in our in our world uh, that uh, where family seems to be some sort of sacrosanct um, entity, some kind of conceptual grouping that we 
rarely challenge, even when we have the facts that say, well, we do technically belong to these. But that that dissociation from the people we grow up, we grow up with, mm. it's not uncommon at all. I think people feel guilty sometimes. They don't feel the affinity with one or both parents that supposedly they're supposed to feel. You know, but that's the kind of that old programming. The you know, Wally and Beaver Cleaver are supposed to, you know, indelible bond to Warden June. I mean, that we all know that that's just not the case. Not to mention the fact that, what was it, less than 10% of all family structures are, you know, two parents with, with a couple of kids. I mean, that's, those days are long, long gone by. So the yeah. whole notion of family has been changing now for, for some time. Um, and uh, so it pushes the issue, though, I think, on how we, as parents, and I mentioned to my wife and I adopted our son when he was four. It's the, it's, the, it's out of out of the unconditional love and the and the, the dedication, if you will, to help grow help somebody else grow in the path they're supposed to be on, rather than you're supposed to be like me. Your dad's a you know your dad's a salesman. Your mom's a, a teacher. You're supposed to be like one or the other. Otherwise, you're being disloyal. A lot of people grow up with those scripts as though. And people, even even after the parents are gone, I mean, they're, mm-hmm. people have a grave, the ghost of the parents from the past seem to be ruling their lives to say, well, you still should be a, you know, a teacher like your mother. What's wrong with you? Uh, or I can never please my mom or my dad, even though they're no longer here. Those are kind of those psychological dimensions that, that, that come out of uh, the, the need for connection, I think. And, and uh, that can lead us all in some very difficult and strange, strange places if we do so blindly. Mm. rather than appreciate the parents that you do have for who they are as individuals. And and I'm gonna, I have no idea this pertains to you at all. If you've been lucky enough to be grow up in a family, whatever family construct that is, gay parents, whatever, same-sex parents, whatnot, that if, if the predicate of their marriage is to support each other and their individuality, as well as their mutuality, that my job as a good uh, good spouse is to also help you be you be the the very person you're meant to be. Mm-hmm. If you that's your model, you're going to grow up healthy. If you're but as opposed to it's your job to have you know this is old fashioned stereotype you know food on the table when I get home at night make me happy bring me the paper you know bring me a drink whatever mm-hmm. if I'm happy then you're doing your a good job and of course that's just an antiquated bunch of nonsense. Uh, because it's self-centered and it's, and it's it it feeds a concept. It feeds the idea that if you're gonna if your job is to make me happy, it's a never-ending job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Stephen Rowley, and he is the author of The Lost Coin: A Therapist's Personal Ad- uh, Adoption Journey and Insights. Here on Tell Me Your Story, we're talking with Stephen Rowley. I'm Richard Dugan, and uh, we're talking about the Lost Coin. I wanted to ask you um, in regards to what you just described in the last portion of our program. It seems, and and I, I believe this comes from the uh, the 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 Jungian psychology that you have have studied and so forth as a therapist, that an adoptee initially, when wanting to know who they are and where they come from, is having am I am I using I hope the term correctly an existential crisis. And then when they start to get the information they have been looking for forever, for however long they have been looking, now they're facing a whole new existential crisis, similar to what you described when you take a look at that Christmas card with all of those people there. And he's like, the DNA says I'm related, but uh, am I really kind of thing? 
Am I using, first of all, am I using existential correctly? (laughs) Well, I I suppose we'd have to, you know, dig around and, you know, define existentialism. I don't think that's probably worth our time, but I know what you mean. I will say, since you mentioned Jung, though, in terms of the so-called existential crisis or the crisis of identity, the midlife crisis, I mean, the predicate for most Jungian analysis and and, and, uh, Jung's work primarily revolves around middle age. Now, middle age can be 35 to whatever, it's not to say that young people, and certainly some do, have what I would call an existential crisis. For example, uh, you've had both parents killed in a car wreck when you're eight years old. Arguably, that's an existential crisis. Now, you don't, n- nobody says, honey, I'm so sorry for you. You're having an existential crisis. What can I do to help? I mean, that terminology doesn't come until way later. You have to go to college and take philosophy or whatever until that even rings true. What yeah. you're talking about is, is trauma and, ah. and heartache legitimate core uh, existentialism is more or less of a conceptual notion okay but th- these core experiences that can uh, that are connected with trauma dissociation uh, and the behaviors that come with that either either highly aggressive angry behaviors that get us in trouble or depressive inwardly bound uh, shouldering yourself from the outer world being this, the other side of the of the same coin those are the things that begin to that people I see and others I don't see, but I recognize run through their lives, the ways in which uh, uh, abandonment, uh, trauma, doesn't, it includes, but it's not limited to an option. Those things begin to impact us in ways that uh, that do create a crisis, whether it's conscious or not. What part of therapy is to bring it to consciousness? Um, so it's, but, but I think it's more typical for, if you want to call it existential, like, okay, like I, I you know, uh, I raised my kids they're out of the house uh, or I did just got a divorce or I didn't. And, and uh, you know, I, my job's okay. I'm going to retire in five years or I just retired. What now? I mean, beyond playing golf and seeing grandkids, I mean, what else is my life up to? And that is a very real crisis. I would call it existential about, about where we've been in pursuit of other things. Uh, 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 in fact, I've got a, well, I can't grab it out now. Jim Hollis talks about this. It's really inter- it really isn't until we get to that age that we those questions begin to loom large and realize the first half of my life was a train wreck. I might have had a good time, but it didn't add up to anything. I was pursuing all the things that we're supposed to do, family, careers, some kind of happiness. But now the shift in midlife into later life then becomes, I think, not so much a crisis, although we can experience it that way, but a but but the opportunity to find different meaning. And I've got several clients I know that are right in the middle of that process. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a finger snap like, oh, this is what it is. It can be a, a somewhat arduous, long journey to redefine terms, not in terms of happiness, where I find meaning, where I'm not only looking backward, but looking forward. That becomes the, a different, that's the other end of the existential crisis. An existential crisis is one end of the dark night of the soul and the other end is something we can only uh, discover on our own. Oh, I tell you, I, I have been having conversations with my mother um, who uh, has, has basically told me in no uncertain terms, if you call me, do not call me with a bunch of negative stuff. I don't want to hear the negative stuff. If you call me, you want some advice, you want some guidance or something of this nature, inspiration, you go right ahead and call me and say, hey, I need I need a little advice, et cetera, et cetera. And at first it put me off going, but mom, you're, you're, you know, and then I realized, no, she's right. She's right. I don't want to do that. 
So when I start taking a look at this issue of happiness, and I'm challenged almost on a daily basis in this regard, because my wife, uh, she is challenged right now. Uh, She's retired, uh, forced retirement, unfortunately, and is trying to figure out what to do and expects me, and she's in so many words has said so, that, um, you know, if I would just do this or that or the other thing, that would make her happy, to which I've I've always responded, and I've known this for years. I can't make you happy any more than you can make me happy. Right, right, and, yes. Yeah, and one of the things that that uh, um, she said to me says, and there was this this one particular attribute that she says, well, if I started doing this again, would you be, you know, how would you feel? And I said, well, I'd be disappointed, but there are still things in my life that bring me great joy, that bring me happiness that I would do, uh, you know, because your choices are your choices. And one of the greatest pieces of advice that my mother and father, I had the chance of interviewing them back in 2015 for this program. The the advice that they gave me through their example was, and you kind of talked about this just a few minutes ago. They said that we supported each other in our respective dreams, what we wanted to do with our lives, the hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. And my mother summed it up this way. She says, I have his back and I know he has mine. But she has always told me, and especially in recent days, you need to do what you need to do for your happiness. And she has to find her own. And you can be there to support her, you know, suppose, you know, have her back as it were. But she's the one that has to do the work. Do you find that a lot of people with it come to you initially, uh, they, they want help, but they want you to, they want you to guide them in that respect. Yeah. Uh, certainly I think some do, uh, back to your point, uh, using your the examples you've given, I think there's a subtle difference, but an important difference between, uh, serving the other person and serving the relationship. Uh, there's considerable overlap, and you're absolutely right. When two people can can uh, relieve each other from the notion that I that that your happiness is contingent on what I do, uh, that, uh, that that when you're relieved from that, it makes that cover you know uh, uh, covering each other's back a much happier proposition. Mm. There's security, there's dependence, there's there's mutuality in that in that in that. Uh, uh, equation and i think that can be for some people who know how to do it well enormously satisfying in which in which both get served both the person and the each other and the relationship grow from that individuality but we're, we're not always trained in that that uh, way unless we've we've been taught by our own parents to to live and work that we can learn it on our own but it's but it's a, it's a struggle but it is kind of a it's you know when when you know it's an otherwise an, ex, an exhaustive proposition to think what do I have to do today to make you happy? What do I have to do tomorrow to make you happy? Mm-hmm. And it's it's as you know, it's a, it becomes just a big drag, and that's uh, uh, those are ones of the kind of strains that really pull relationships down. Absolutely, I'm talking with Stephen Rowley. He is the author of the Lost Coin, and I uh, the 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 metaphor is not lost on me, uh, Stephen. I I I think that's a wonderful metaphor in that respect. Thank you. 
Uh, and I think that it's, it's quite appropriate for this context as we continue talking with Stephen here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're talking with uh, Stephen Rowley, the author of The Lost Coin. I wanted to ask you a little bit here uh, about, and, and if you, you know, some people are going, well, why haven't you asked him about how, you know, why he wrote the book? Well, I think he's explained that because he's an adoptee and he had the curiosity and wanted to share that with other folks. But I wanted to ask you about uh, this this uh, combination of Jungian psychology and Zen Buddhism. I took psychology in junior college one semester. I didn't I did not do well in it as far as grades are concerned. However, I enjoyed it because it it taught me an awful lot. And then in the 80s and early 90s, I went through some personal growth programs that taught me even more about uh, uh, about psychology in general. And then working for a Christian radio station for 15 years, that was also one of the subjects that I was gratefully paid for, uh, along with sociology, political science, comparative religions, and the list goes on. How how does uh, Jungian psychology and Zen Buddhism uh, work together? How do they work together in this context? Not many people have an answer to that question, regrettably. Uh, I will <laughs> reference Mark Epstein, who is a Buddhist uh, psychiatrist in New York, has written a number of books, the last of which is called The Art of Zen Therapy, which is a marvelous book, and it shows it, numerous examples of how it works. And I would say, it, in my case, it's it's uh, the things I've taken from different Buddhist uh, teachers, both in person and through their writing, that it begins to, Zen begins to inform a deeper notion of mind. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, who started the San Francisco Zen Center in the uh, I think the late 50s, uh, called Beginner's Mind. And Beginner's Mind is something, I think, is something that we're well to, as therapists anyway, and it can apply to anyone, I think, is is that the idea of every time I sit down to meditate, and this, this is the analogy, I begin with a fresh mind. I, I don't assume anything to, to be true or not true. So when I, with a new client, I have to be in a position of beginner's mind. I'm going to start all over. I'm going to leave all my presets and all my training off to the side. I'm going to experience this person and in some maybe uh, in some fashion, maybe model that to, to be open, to open, to open be what is. And this is where curiosity becomes that driver, that wedge to open up psyche, to open up the conversation. There are a couple of others. I'll just mention one in, in, in passing, uh, how a uh, one of the, the precepts of not just Zen, but I think Buddhism in general is that the source of, of, uh, uh, of suffering, of all suffering, is attachment. So we look at oftentimes these ideas or relationships to which we are uncommonly and maybe unhealthily attached. And the question is why? How are we attached? Why are we attached? How do we learn to unattach? Uh, we don't, not only with people, but sometimes with thoughts, people who have, uh, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, repetitive thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, or they can't get off the dime about, you know, this is what I think of my old man, or this is, you know, what, what I think of my boss, and can't get rid of it, can't get rid of it. And this is the sort of like clinging. And so part of the what what meditation, Zen meditation can teach us is that as we try to clear the mind, we can't stop thinking. Meditation is not stopping thinking because you really can't stop the mind. You can slow it down, but you can't mm -hmm. stop. Mm -hmm. So I liken it with clients oftentimes to so think of think of these thoughts like clouds going by out the window 
And just to be able to position, watch, be able to have the patience and the, and the awareness to simply watch them go by and also the thoughts they generate. I say, you know, if you imagine people sitting stiff back in, in dark robes and sitting on cushions in a, in a, a Zen meditation hall, staring at the, <laughs> at the uh, wall, you think they look like corpses or something. Well, I can guarantee you if they had little bubbles coming out of their head, you'd say, my back's killing me. What's for lunch? Oh my God, I forgot to pay the rent. Where are my car keys? They're having, they're having their own thoughts. What they're practicing is the awareness of their own thinking. You're cultivating the awareness. So as you cultivate the awareness, you begin to be able to say, it's enough to, to observe the phenomenon. It's enough to observe the cloud. It's enough. I can hear myself uh, yet again, repeating my, my mantra about how rotten my old man was. It's like what Ronald Reagan used to say, well, here I go again. When we can catch ourselves <laughs> in those moments where we kind of go, oh, here I go again, you know, then we begin to understand we can, the, who's, the who's watching, who's saying that, the who am I question. So we begin to peel off another layer and begin to, to create some, some facsimile of, without getting too woo-woo or too deep into Zen philosophy, a different kind of higher self that is really on the soul level. And that's, I think, part of what I try to do in my book is that you can read this the, the book itself as a as a, a detective story and whatever. It's a, a child of the 60s. A boomer can read it and find themselves in it. But it's also soul's journey. So this idea of, of soul, which not only comes from Zen, but it comes also from, you know, from, from uh, uh, the likes of uh, Jung and James Hillman and many others, that, that this is a, has a spiritual dimension to the work if it's done well. It doesn't mean religious. It means that other higher self that is actually the, the deeper essence of who we are and all the other trappings of, that, are, that are, come with us as people, our egos, our hungry little egos, our need to, you know, our need to wanting, our upset and so forth. Those, those are not going to go away, but we can cultivate an appreciation. That's just what they are. And there's that mm -hmm. other richer, deeper soul level of who we are that we can get in touch with. And so part of therapy from a Zen perspective, Buddhist perspective is, is uh, is just that it's getting in touch you know you go to the dalai lama i have a story there uh, in the middle called uh, uh sharon stone the dalai lama and me that's in the middle of my book mm -hmm. but when you get down to it and i've been in one semi-private meeting with him when he's not being the dalai lama he's just a regular guy of mm -hmm. dedicated to kindness now, that's he says that buddhism is a, is the is the religion of kindness and you, know, you can take that to the bank I mean, yeah. you can forget all the other writings and deities and books and practices and stuff at a basic level. That essence is accessible to us. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that when I have clients that we jump into Buddhism, but every now and then these ideas will come up a little. And they, just as I say, even even Jungian orthodoxy only comes up a little. Yeah. Uh, when I moved only, to uh, when I moved to Santa Barbara, I was told uh, that uh, you may come across some uh, some some movie stars or TV people or what have you, and uh, you need to treat them just like you would anybody else because they put their pants on one leg at a time just like you. Right. So don't go completely bonkers over. <gasps> and I've never been that way. I mean, even if I had met my three favorite musicians who have unfortunately long since passed away, but even if I had met them, uh, I would be grateful to be in their presence because of the messages that they have brought to me that, uh, right. you know, in terms of listening to their music. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to be aware of the wonderful accomplishments, let's say of the Dalai Lama, but right. not be 
so in awe that you can't speak. Uh, and I wanted to actually speak about uh, meditation. But before I do, I want to remind you, you are listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're talking with Stephen Rowley, the author of The Lost Coin, here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and this is Tell Me Your Story. And we're talking with the author of The Lost Coin, and uh, his name is Stephen Rowley. And we encourage you to go to his website, which I will give you right now. It is stephenrowley108.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-R-O-W-L-E-Y, the numbers 108.com. May I ask where the 108 comes in? I knew you'd ask that question. <laughs> I don't have a form. I know, I know there's, I'm sure people who are listening can answer this better than I can, but it is considered a lucky number. It actually comes, there's some people would argue it comes from, uh, there's a significance in, in the Buddhist world. Uh, but, uh, it's just, it's been a lucky number for me and I, I put it in there and it stayed there. So I like it. That's very good. Very good. The lost coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. I want to talk a little bit about this, this aspect of meditation. I'm not a, I'm not a real big meditator, although I have made some attempts, but what's been fascinating is the conversations I've had about meditation with many of my guests uh i remember back in the uh, late 70s early 80s when i was first introduced to it i was always told you need to quiet the mind you need to tell it to shut up so that you can focus on da 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 uh then later on it was um you just need to like you just described allow the thoughts to just go by like clouds then uh, I came up with a theory that uh, not too many years ago that I'm sitting there meditating and I first, before I start meditating, I talk to my mind because the mind is kind of like a child. And I say, look, I need some time in this quiet, peaceful, calm, still place. And, and, and I'll be back. I will. I promise. And when we, when I get back, I'm going to have some new tools, some new fun things that we can play with. Uh, if you'll just, if you'll stay out here. Well, not long ago, one of my guests, after my sharing that, said, you know what would be better is if you were to invite your mind with one rule to come with you. And as long as the mind stays quiet, it can come along and it can observe and see what's happening. And I thought, well, yeah, because if you did, if you didn't do that, you're trying to compartmentalize yourself, and that's not possible. You know, we can try, but we will be unsuccessful in doing so. And I thought that was to me. I thought, so, wow, that is that is some great insight to invite the mind to go with you as long as the mind stays quiet. And and if there are questions. <laughs> Can ask later. You know what I'm saying? I that's, have, that's like saying I'm going to take my child to dinner with us as long as they're well behaved. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, and 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 I have to say too that that though I have not spent a great deal of time in quote unquote meditation, I do uh, go into that quiet, peaceful place every so often. And of late, I have found myself speaking to myself out loud. And I'm not saying I'm channeling my father, but it just seems as though 
my dad is speaking to me in terms of, hey, hang in there. Everything's going to be all right. Life is good. You're doing what you need to be doing. Don't don't get yourself all, all wound up. I'm curious as to how important the inner life even of, of everybody, but but especially with adoptees who are trying to find these answers and they're really struggling to find the answers because mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe the records are sealed or maybe they burned up in a fire or whatever the case may be and they can't get those answers that they so desperately desire. How important is turning within in terms of maybe making peace with the fact that all the records are gone. They burned up in a fire in Chicago during the Chicago fire kind of thing. You had about 10 questions in the middle of that. See if I can pull. pull, pull <laughs> I know. Pull. I, I apologize. I tend to do that. <laughs> well, let me, let me start with one that needs to get answered. I think, uh, which isn't an answer. It's certainly not the answer. Let me go back to the meditation again. I mean, I'm, I'm pulling from a couple of different spiritual teachers on this one. About about the confusion about there's so many variations of what meditation is and what it's not and mindfulness. I mean, there's a whole industry around mindfulness, this, that, and the other. Uh, the harder concept of meditation and the the motives underlying that. I'm going to I'm going to meditate for peace. I've got a friend who's who, uh, Danny Goldberg, who's a Zen uh, uh, priest and uh, has taught me how, a lot about writing and and. Uh, is doing a, a, a meditation in the center of uh, the town square this weekend, I think, in uh, Santa Fe for peace in the Middle East. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can use it as you want to. Mm-hmm. But the question is that people, I think, uh, appro- approaching it with the the difficult approach is to, to approach meditation uh, to drop all expectations. Mm. You're not taking it to calm down. You're not taking it to lose weight. You're not trying to make peace in the world. You're not trying to do anything. In fact, there's those who argue that 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 the that the uh, that that meditation is the enlightenment. That's it. That's the whole precept of Zen. That Zen is that you know this. I'm, I don't have anything except glass table. You know this hard. I can hear that or not. That hard kind of surface, the sound, the crack of it. That's this is it. This is reality. That's all there is. So when you sit with all, all your thoughts and all your expectations, all the stories you have. Well, that's all part of it, what you bring to it. But the truth is, is that, uh, at least from the Zen per- perspective, I think, is that you're, 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 you're sit, you've got your seat, in the, seat in the, on the cushion of the chair or the floor. That's it. That's it. As uh, Jack Cornfield uh, wrote the book, uh, um, First Ecstasy, Then the Laundry. We all got to put our pants on after we're done. Mm-hmm. We all return to being real people. Uh, and when we can relieve ourselves from, I think, some of these grandiose expectations, big ideas, and God knows, you know, Buddhism and other religions have a whole truckload of those things that we think we should do, and reduce ourselves down into something more simple, something, and this is, I think, even in therapy, where, where I'm not saying this principle applies per se, but uh, uh, Pima Chodron, who's a Buddhist teacher uh, and author for many wonderful books, is that I use it with uh, in therapy a lot with clients. It's a very simple proposition. Let your heart break and drop the story. So when you've got whether you're in therapy or another thing that's bothering you, or maybe oh maybe if I meditate, I'll you know I'll I'll have some you know an amazing insight. I'll have I'll get closer to God. I'll be more spiritual. I'll leave all my stuff behind. Is actually is largely a fallacy. 
And it's, it's mm. a hard one to kind of confront. So when we can bring ourselves down to earth, when we can bring ourselves that whole thing about let your heart break behind most people who come to therapy, there's some kind of trauma, there's some kind of connecting, either, either realized or not, into some deep core feeling of heartache or anger or unresolved grief or whatever. Uh, when we can get ourselves into that emotional core, tap our own soul at some level, not for eternity, but enough to really get down there, then all the other stuff, all the reasons, all the stories, all the explanations, all the ideas begin to pale. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. this, I'm overly simplifying just to make the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, that if we learn anything in, in therapy, is that this, those story stuff is the, story, it's the stuff of the mind. That's the stuff I have my reasons that my why my ex-wife was a was a witch on steroids. I mean, I, she's <laughs> impossible and still making my life miserable or whatever that story is. Or if it hadn't been for my old man, if it hadn't been for the cops, if it hadn't been for school, then I would have been this, that, or the other. We hold on to that story, that clinging to the story. When we learn to let go of the story, it's more than it's not only just releasing it, but in terms of particular therapy in mind. It's then allowing us to go more deeply into that core, that core emotional truth that we have. Again, it doesn't mean you're in a solid state forever and ever of grief and or cathartic you know, crying or whatever or or anger. But without getting there, uh, without keeping our distractions out there, uh, new ideas, new spiritual highs we're looking for, we we neglect that the mm-hmm. challenge, if you as well as the reward of getting connected to that core level and mm-hmm. understanding ourselves at that deeper level. It doesn't have to be, you know, like we can still go to lunch after we had, had the ecstasy. We've got to have that moment first, I think, or work toward that to say, this is my truth. This is who I am. This is my my deeper emotional self that I am in touch with. And that's, that can take that can happen sometimes for some people in, in moments, mm-hmm. uh, other times not. But sometimes we think of, of uh, 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 meditation is a transcendent experience. The energy is up and out towards something more divine. It's out there in the universe. And we find in therapy, but I think for other people, that, that quite the reverse can be equally true. We bring the energy inward. We bring it through the body, into the trunk of the, of the body, in through the, the soles of our feet, into the gravity of the earth. And that's a kind of what Ajashadi would call a redemptive kind of experience, a redemptive kind of love which is a different energy altogether. It's as though we've been looking for forgiveness <clears throat> in all the wrong places. And when, in fact, we bring that back into matters of the heart and soul, mm-hmm. and that's where we find our new ground. We're talking with Stephen Rowley, and he is the author of The Lost Coin, and we are talking with him here on Tell Me Your Story. I want to ask you, Stephen Rowley, author of uh, The Lost Coin, about... Um, let's see how I can put this, um, from what we've had, uh, from what we've talked about in this conversation here on this program, there is a level of incompleteness that an adoptee feels until one finds the answers to the questions they have. If that means finding the birth parents, the birth mother at the very least, and hopefully the birth father. Uh, and starting to get those those answers that, that have been nagging at them for who knows how long. And hopefully at that point, there is, uh, and this is more of a question to you, there is sort of a, a sense of 
completion. Okay, now I have all these answers and now I know I'm good. I'm good with that. Or is there still, even after getting all of those answer uh, questions answered, there is there still a sense of incompleteness because of the initial trauma of, um, well, I'll use the word, uh, being abandoned for whatever the reasons were? I think I think there was certainly looking in the rearview mirror. There was a time where that would have been a, a major assumption that would have been true for me, and maybe true for other people who have been in search for their. But I think again, not only from a uh, from a therapeutic point of view, but also what my own journey has taught me is that, uh, uh, in the words of it's in the book, I think, a quote, in the words of Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, "Life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived." It's living that mystery. If I may, let me read. This is the first um, quote I have. It sort of begins the book by Rainer Maria Rilke, the Austrian poet. Be patient toward all that's unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And I pause here. If I would have found my birth parents when I was 20, my life would have been, t- I was not ready for that at all, even though I was looking. Mm-hmm. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. That last thing, w- without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So you live into the answer. You don't go to find the answer. It more or less comes to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of that intellectual and spiritual maturity that if we're lucky enough to work at it, we can develop that some of these deeper understandings are not something we can go out and find. They, they have a way of coming to us. It's a little like Jung's concept of the, of the tension of the opposites. The resolution of those opposites, I, I would argue, more or less come to us. We can't go out and pluck them off a tree. So mm-hmm. these questions are, that we have about our very existence and the, thing, the unknowns and the unresolved issues, part of that, bringing those to life, so to speak, uh, begin to f- inform us, even if it informs, uh, yeah, a deeper f- uh, sense of incompletion, of yearning. Talk about an existential reality. We're all incomplete. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we're all yearning for connection. Every last one of us. We're always le- yearning, I think, at some level for some, even if we're happily married and we have the world's greatest <laughs> life, we have children all love us and everybody's making money and living content, stable lives, all that stuff. There's still, if we look hard enough, those those who are still active learners and seekers in this life have have a little bit of that ambient tone, so to speak, that's in our souls that keeps driving us with those questions. And frankly, even now that I've written this book and one would think, well, you got that one down. It's all, it's all in a box. It's all solved. Well, it's, it's maybe I'm not so worried about what, what I, what I, who I am, but as I alluded to earlier in Jim Hollis, in fact, the, the very book I have, Sitting right here, uh, Hollis's book on um, uh, a meaning of uh, a life of meaning, relocating the center of your spiritual gravity. I mean, for some people like me, uh, that becomes that <clears throat> I search for a deeper form of meaning. So I'm in my mid seventies, and I have a, I've had several careers, a book under my belt. So you think, well, I don't, you know, that ought to be it, but not for me. So that that if you call it a quest. Mm-hmm. Or using curiosity, uh, following the, the the that uh, allowing the the invisible hand of fate 
perhaps what Hillman would call our diamond, our guardian angel, keep beckoning us towards something that's just still at that point over the horizon. To me, that's that is the mystery of life and how that happens and one can only speculate. But to be part of that energetic field, so to speak, is is a to me it's a rich place and it comes with a lot of like I don't know. Which in therapy itself is a great I, it's, it's not uncommon at all where with a client I'm thinking, what what do I do next? I don't know, or where they go, what what do I do now? And it's like so there's certain moments where the not knowing is a really rich place to be. Because yeah. then we ha- have that question. Then we watch what comes up. Then we yeah. watch, even in my own book, as I said, as I wrote it and completed it, I was very aware of had ancestors behind me. I've had, I have a couple of friends who are psychics and said, you bet they were. They were there the whole time, which was my feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, but I had the feeling of that. Yeah. Something, something completing something uh, beyond my rational capacity to account for. Mm. I find this this conversation fascinating, even though I am not an adoptee uh, and I have no children either. (laughs) And uh, yet at the same time, you know, I have all of those same questions, even though I can Mm -hmm. pinpoint, okay, these are my parents and these are my siblings. There is still the existential question of um, where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going and I would think that uh, that again again is still the same. Those are the same three minimum three questions that every human being asks at one point in their lives. But for an adoptee, it's layered first with where do I come from as far as this lifetime? You want to talk about past lives? That's fine. That's another conversation for another program. But I like what you said about uh, the psychic telling you that your ancestors were there with you the whole time. And that's how I feel these days. Uh, Lost my uh, eldest sister in March of uh, 2022. Lost my father this year in March. Uh, Lost my dear friend of 53 years back in May of this year. And uh, we grew up together. And every time I think about him, I laugh. I, I can't do anything else but laugh because we had so much fun together. We uh, we took a trip across country together, which could have torn us apart. But at the end, I said, look, I just assume call it even because I don't want to lose the friendship. And that's what we did. Um, I believe they are there, uh, whether they be behind me or in front of me or wherever they might be, having some kind of influence in my life, I still make the choices, but boy, I'll tell you what, those impressions that I'm getting from, I believe my father, um, they're pretty profound sometimes. And they're simple. There's nothing, there's nothing complex about it. It's very simple. Uh, I'm just glad that my dad is free of the body that he was in and uh, that he's, he's, and now I can talk to him literally anytime. Whereas before I'd have to call him up on the phone in Phoenix and, and, and chat with him. So from that standpoint, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a happy camper. I'm a, always been an optimistic person. How about you? Uh, hopefully if I've done enough work on myself, I've tried to alleviate, <laughs> alleviate myself uh, from uh, thinking about belief, mm-hmm. what I believe or not, or even faith for that matter, uh, blind faith. Yeah. Um, I think I think as you said in so many words, when I can uh, shift out of that rational, my rational brain, 
into the domain of feeling or intuition. It's a different way of seeing. It's a different way of knowing. And th those signs and how we learn that, who teaches us or what teaches us, you know, maybe maybe it takes some of our dear ones to be gone before we begin to tap into a power, a, a, a level of awareness that we didn't have before. Yeah. It, whether it's, it's true or not, uh, well, in my book, here's a, here's a, a, a little spin on what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is where, where uh, I've experienced it with myself, but also with, with clients. Uh, uh, in the book, it talks about how James Hillman, the great psych psychologist uh, in, in um, The Soul's Code, which is a terrific book, uh, recounts Plato, uh, Plato in Plato's Republic. And there's the, uh, the uh, myth of Ur, which the, uh, uh, the general story is that before we're born, we're in some sort of life between lives, and we choose the conditions and the people of our, of our existence. Mm -hmm. We choose our parents. We choose our job. We choose our good or bad, uh, our wife, our kids, good or bad. We've chosen every good and bad aspect that will be in our lives. And so, I, and I would put this to that idea to, to uh, clients to say, don't assume it's true or not true. Just for the moment, entertain the imagination to think just, just for the next five minutes. Let's mm -hmm. say it was true. So if that were true, this predicament you find is in this, this dead end, this cul-de-sac you can't get out of. Why would you do that to yourself? What was what was the what was the meaning you were supposed to get out of this? Where where does this? Why did you put yourself there? What was it you were supposed to get by any other means except in a really difficult place? And they, that ties into say many people, including the Dalai Lama, who point out often that uh, our greatest teachers are are is is adversary or adversaries uh, mm. uh, obstacles, and by by these ways we begin to learn and reacquaint ourselves with our own particular destiny that fulfillment of that the good and the bad and the ugly that's all what i think makes us who we are that's part of our the tragedies in our life are also deep i argue deep in our humanity if we allow them to you know to lose a child for example even though you haven't had a child but many people have lost children mm -hmm. at, at any age and uh the horror and the, the deep heartache that comes with that uh uh no one should have to but people do all the time and it's it's a horrible tragedy, and yet that level of sorrow says something about in the gut of our who we are that, that transcends, well, you look at the Middle East right now. I mean, the horror, the going on on all sides, the tragedy, the loss, you don't have to pick a side mm -mm. to feel the heartache of what's going on and the desperation that's going on globally around that situation that seemingly has no end right now. Yeah, That even as, out of the worst circumstances, we can reinforce who we are by our communion with, I think, with, in this particular case, the sorrow that is, that's one of the avenues, as well as, of course, the, the, the happy things. I mean, people who have children and their lifelong dream to be a father or mother and, and the kid makes you really happy. Well, that's a point of joy. Yeah. Also very instructive on who we are, our capacity. So, And the difficult thing for people to understand in terms of what you just stated just a few moments ago, as far as that life between lives, by the way, Dr. Newton, uh, who studied this, I read his uh, two or three books on the case studies, fascinating, and I've even been through that uh, hypnosis therapy, uh, where I went back to my last life before this one, uh, and uh, then passed away and went through that through that portal and so on and so forth. It was to me, it was fascinating. I mean, just 
I mean, there are times when I wish I could go back to that last life before this one. Um, not that it was a simpler life or an easier life. It was just that I, uh, in that time period that I was alive, I was, I and many, many other people were much more connected to nature and the natural world and, and taking care of uh, the, the, the spaces that we lived in. It was to me fascinating. But, and one of the things too, that you talked about was uh, the, the fact that in that life between lives, we make all of those different choices, right? Well, here's, here's something that is very difficult for a lot of folks to understand because they may not agree that we make these contractual agreements, if you will, uh, in terms of the parents and the siblings and the community and so on and so on and so on. And the reality is that each one of us human beings on the planet right now has made all of those choices. And I know that it is hard for some folks to hear, but the folks in the Ukraine and in Russia, they made the choices that have put them where they are. And the folks in Palestine and Israel, they made the choices that have put them where they are. And the folks in the United States on the red side or the blue side, they put themselves right where they are. So there is no, there's no victim. There's no blaming. We have to learn to come to a place of taking responsibility. Have I... Have I stated that uh, accurately at all? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> okay. Stephen Raleigh is my guest. Uh, the uh, The Lost Coin is the book. It is, uh, it is about adoption and his experience in that regard. And we encourage you to get a copy of The Lost Coin, A Therapist's Personal Adoption Journey and Insights as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. Stephen Rowley, I want to thank you so much for being a part of Tell Me Your Story and uh, sharing your story with us and insights into this process and many others as well, meditation and and so forth. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's it's I, I like to be able to say at the end of each of these programs that I have learned a little something new. And I have I have in this context. And by the way, as far as Zen Buddhism is concerned. It is probably one of my favorites because of the story of um, Siddhartha, who searched and searched and searched and searched for enlightenment and finally sat down under the Bodhi tree and said, ah, oh, I give up. I give up and then whammo. And sometimes that's what we need to do when we have all these questions is we just need to stop and say, I surrender and let the universe take control and it's hard to do because we want to control it all so thank you for sharing all of this with us you're very welcome thank you for having me on i do have three final questions for you though that oh, i ask okay. all of my guests <laughs> you thought you were done but before i ask you those questions i want to thank you for listening to and watching tell me your story new paradigms for a new world where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true we are here on sundays at 7 a.m and 7 p.m monday mornings at 1 a.m 9 a.m on wednesdays that's our special edition of tell me your story and during the month of december we are here from 8 to 9 a.m monday through friday i'm very excited about the opportunity to share many of the guests that we have during that particular time slot. So please tune in. We stream at those times. 
live at richarddugan.com. We podcast all of our interviews, our conversations on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Amazon. You can actually get the podcasts on Audible. I have, I've got the link from to my podcasts and I am a member of Audible so I can get my podcasts there as well. And so can you. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these conversations and I hope you subscribe. If you don't, at least select notifications so that when I put a new conversation up, you'll be notified and you can take a listen and or you can watch and listen. So uh, please uh, do so. We also ask that if you can support the work we're doing financially, we would be grateful for any support that you can send us. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And the email address to use is richard at richarddugan.com. That's richard at richarddugan.com. We also ask that you do spend some time if you can. You can call it meditation if you like. You can just call it taking a break from the outside world and go within to that quiet, peaceful, calm place and listen to that still small voice that's there. It's there for you. With all of that being said, we now talk to the author of The Lost Coin and ask the three questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, who is Stephen Rowley? <laughs> who else? Is, somebody else uses that question. Who is that does always ask, who are you? I have who no is idea. Steve Rowley? <laughs> yeah. Who is Stephen uh, uh, Rowley? Stephen Rowley is, is a lucky guy that has been... Uh, um, blessed in so many different ways and, and hopefully uh, uh, in this life repaying some of those gifts. Uh, I would say probably at the core, probably a searcher and, and it's a, it's a, a really worn out um, phrase, but it does apply. I think I'm a lifelong learner. I am a polymath. I'm interested in so many things. I don't have enough years in this lifetime to do and all that I'd like to learn and know, but that's, but I'm driven by that curiosity. What was your best day? Oh, uh, well, that one's an easy one. And it's in the book, the, the day that our son walked through the door as a four-year-old and my wife and I saw him and it was like love at first sight. Uh, we knew we were going to adopt him. We knew in our heart that he was our son from the moment that we saw him. Mm. Uh, top, t tough to beat that moment. Once again, I thank you so much for being a part of the program and sharing your story and helping others to find their story and try to find uh, the missing, the missing chapters, shall we say? And uh, we encourage folks to get a hold of you through Stephen Rowley. 108.com will be linked to that website, Stephen, so folks can uh, connect with you through uh, through the podcast. So thank you again for joining us here on the program. I thank you for listening to and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to law. Jeanette, I am still listening. Dad, continue to be happy because I am. Smokey, I will see you on the other side. And to my dear friend Zorro, aho, aho. <laughs>